Take your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been uh, in this book for the last four weeks. We have done an introductory message, then we've done a message from verses 1 and 2, and then uh, 3 to 5, and 6 to 9, and this morning we'll be in verses 10 to 12. We've looked at the hope of salvation, we've looked at the power of salvation, and this morning we're going to look at the grace of salvation. The grace of salvation. We're going to see it in verses 10, 11, and 12 this morning. Peter writes to us about the grace of gospel salvation. Beginning in verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. So it was the early 2000s, and I was uh, in my early 20s serving in a ministry called the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And Jamie and I had become members of Anniston Bible Church and had been there for a little while. And the elders of the church came to me, approached me, and said, we would like to pay your way to go to a Christian Bible conference out in Los Angeles, California. And they told me about the conference. They said there'll be Bible preaching. There will be teaching from the Bible on certain aspects of ministry, like youth ministry and campus ministry, which I was involved in, which I led. There will be music, and there'll be singing, and there'll be books. And uh, we think that you'll be encouraged, and we think you'll be equipped by this, by this conference, and so we want you to go. Well, I was immediately excited about the conference and I anticipated it because I had never been to a Christian Bible conference in my life. I had trained in the scriptures really whatsoever and here I was in ministry and so um, as the weeks began to get closer to this conference I was filled with anticipation and so we got on a plane and we flew out to Los Angeles and we touched down and we got into our hotel room and the next morning we got to campus uh, at the church about 7 a.m. And the first thing that I was met with was hundreds of volunteers who were welcoming the people who had come from like 25 different countries to this, to this conference. And what I later found out was that these volunteers take uh, complete weeks off of their job. They take vacation time in order to serve men who were in the ministry. And they would welcome us with, with breakfast and with uh, articles that had been written for us to read. And then they would welcome us with free books about the gospel and about the scriptures and commentaries. And we didn't have to pay for them. They were just handed out to us left and right. And I remember walking away from that conference with like 30 books. I think I'd been given two books in my whole life at that point. And then I'm given 30. I didn't even know how to get them back to Alabama. And and then I'm, I'm met with, with Bible teaching like I'd never heard before in my life, ever. And then the first time I walked into the main service, and I'm looking around at 5,000 men who are standing up, singing praises to God with their hands raised up in the air. 
The only time I'd ever seen that amount of men in one location with their hands in the air and their voices raised, there was some kind of ball in the middle of a field or a court. And then there was free shoe shines. And there were, or, were free, was free sweet tea. And there were free services that were offered all across the campus. And then there were conversations that were going on that were so encouraging to my heart. And, and, and then men would just spontaneously be eating lunch with you and say, hey, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you, brother. And let me pray for your ministry. And I had never experienced any of that. And I thought about the anticipation of what I would experience. And I was really looking forward to it. And this was very unique in life. The actual experience of the event far outweighed and outgloried the anticipation of it. Most of the time when we anticipate something and we, get, we conjure up these thoughts in our mind, it's never as good as what you thought about. But in this case, it was much better than I ever anticipated. Let me tell you guys something. There were prophets in the Old Testament who wrote about a salvation that was to come. And they anticipated it. They looked forward to it. They wrote about it. They studied it. They stayed up nights thinking about it and praying about it and wanting to know more about it. But they never actually got to experience the application of it the way that you and I do. That's what Peter's writing about. He's saying, look, you may be discouraged. You may be suffering. You may be going through a difficult time in your life or in your family. You may be having all kinds of, of problems. But listen, you need to know one thing. What you have experienced in gospel grace is something that men and women of old for generations and generations have not got to experience. No matter how bad it is, take glory in this, take rest in this. You've got something that nobody has ever experienced in the history of the world. Gospel grace. Gospel grace. And so let's look at this gospel grace that Peter wants to show us. Um, what I, want to, what I want you to see is three agents, three agents the Holy Spirit uses to bring us the grace of salvation. Three agents the Holy Spirit uses to bring us the grace of salvation. Before you actually write down the first one, I want to say a couple of things before I get ahead of myself. The first thing is, I, as I meditated on this passage this week, um, I came up with two principles and they're basically the same one stated negatively one stated positively but i want to tell you this the most foolish and self-destructive thing a christian can do is belittle the blessing of gospel grace the most foolish and destructive thing that you can do is belittle the blessing of gospel grace conversely the most helpful the, the wisest and most joy-producing thing that you can do is treasure and revel in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing you can do. Now let's talk about grace for a moment. About uh, four weeks ago, I gave you a message from, uh, in our foundation series from Acts 6 and 7. And what we talked about there, one of our points was that Stephen was full of grace. And we talked about grace a little bit. But I want to tell you just a little bit more about it. In classical Greek, the kind of Greek that like Homer and 
um, Plato and Sophocles used, they would use that, the word grace, charis, and it would simply mean favor. It would mean graciousness. It would mean good things, all right? And then the Septuagint came along. It was uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And those writers would use that same word to talk about God's graciousness. Um, in other words, Noah found grace in the eyes of God, all right, in Genesis chapter 6. Or if you read the Psalms, you find that, that God, the, Yahweh, is gracious to those who call on Him, okay? That's the same similar word, but it talks about essentially the character of God being full of grace. And then when you read Koine Greek, secular Koine Greek, the same kind of Greek that that the New Testament is written in, you see a similar thing, but what you see is a little bit of a nuance. And so what times in Koine Greek you'd find like an emperor or Caesar who exercised grace on one of his subjects, uh, one of the people in his kingdom, and the person in the kingdom would say, you know, emperor, I, I need a favor. And the emperor would say, okay, I'm bigger, stronger, more powerful and richer than you, I'll give you a favor. And so a writer would say, the emperor exercised grace on this person. All right, but it was still general. So when the New Testament comes along, this word grace is is, uh, talked about, it becomes very specific. It goes from general to specific in progressive revelation. And I want to give you the definition of gospel grace that we see in the New Testament. This is something, if you guys are are theologically minded, you want to know doctrine well, let me give you a, a definition of grace. Grace is God's special love toward ill-deserving sinners. God's special love toward ill-deserving sinners by providing them salvation through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That would be a systematic way to define grace from the New Testament. And then you can see it played out throughout all of Scripture when you look back in all of Scripture, understanding gospel grace. One thing that I want to bring out is that we're not merely um, undeserving sinners, we're ill-deserving sinners. In other words, it's not that we just don't deserve God's grace, we actually deserve God's condemnation, His punishment of sin. But He gives us salvation even though we don't deserve it. So now, let's look at the three agents the Holy Spirit uses to bring about this grace to bring about this grace. First one is prophets. Prophets. Look at the first couple of verses here. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicated when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. A prophet was someone who was chosen by God to speak for God, the message of God. That's what a prophet was, okay? And so we could get into all kinds of different nuances, but if you and I read the Old Testament, we can see various prophets, all right? And and listen, God calls all kinds of people to be prophets. He he called uh, sheep herders to be prophets. He called farmers to be prophets. He called princes to be prophets. He called priests to be prophets. He called women to be prophets. He called children to be prophets. He called all kinds of people to become prophets, all right? And and essentially, he, he didn't really 
uh, care so much about the voice, the, the mouthpiece that he was using because he wanted to establish the fact that God can use anybody to speak for his glory and his message. Now, we know a lot of the, the major prophets and the most uh, popular ones, but uh, Abraham was called a prophet in Genesis chapter 20. Noah was called a preacher of righteousness in Second Peter. Moses was called a prophet in Deuteronomy 18. Joshua, Samuel, Nathan, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Jonah, Zechariah. We could go on and, and on. But according to Peter... He doesn't want us to do merely a study of the, the men and women who were prophets and prophetesses. He wants us to understand what it was that they were declaring, what it was they were studying. All right, so under your number one there, under prophets, I want you to write down, if you're taking notes, they forecasted future grace. These prophet, prophets forecasted future grace. Now, in case I don't say this, I, I want to make very clear Grace was activated in the Old Testament, all right? People, anybody who's ever been saved in the history of the world has been saved by grace, not by works, all right? It's just that prior to the gospel grace, it was a grace that was anticipated rather than applied. It was a grace that was looked forward to, that was seen in types and shadows and promises and various specific statements in the Old Testament. All right, so what I want us to do is, um, I know we don't do this a lot, flipping through our Bibles. We're going to have a, just a, a little Bible study this morning uh, from a few different passages so that you can see how prophets forecasted future grace to come. And the reason I want to do this, some of you, this is going to be old hat. But I remember when I was 21 years old, and I sat in a church service, and the preacher turned to an Old Testament passage that was written 1,000 years before Jesus ever showed up on the earth. And he showed me about uh, how, how the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was prophesied about. And you know what it did for me? It blew my mind. Like, wow. I'd kind of thought, you know, I'm not, sure about, I'm not sure about all this. I'm not sure about the reliability of it. And yet, the scripture showed me. Uh, how awesome God is. And so what I would like for us to do is I'd like for us to turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Technically, it's uh, the end of 52 and then on into 53. Isaiah is uh, your first major uh, prophet. Many have called Isaiah the fifth gospel. If you read through the book of Isaiah, what you find is... Uh, a lot of gospel language, a lot of gospel truth, a lot of prophesying and foretelling and, and forecasting about the Lord Jesus. Now, if you want to go home and study, you could actually start in 52.13 and go all the way through 53.12. And essentially all of this prophesies about uh, the Lord Jesus and the salvation to come. For our purposes, we're just going to start in 53 verse 3. And I want you to see how Isaiah forecasts the grace of salvation that is to come, found in the Lord Jesus. This is 700 years before Jesus came on the earth. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised, and we did not esteem Him. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Robbie. Um, just using English terminology for vocabulary, what tense is this written in? Well, it's, it, it's for the future, but look how, he, look how he writes it. It's all in the past tense. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. Isaiah is writing this by the Spirit of God in a way that says it's already done. It's already happened. And, and what do you see here, guys? You see substitutionary atonement. You see the kenosis of God, the self-emptying of God the Son in order to pour out Himself for the salvation of men. You see the the brutal uh, suffering that He undergoes on behalf. You see substitution. You see atonement. You see all of these things that are, are forecasted before they ever happen. So we look at this and we see, wow, there's going to be a Messiah who suffers. You know that if you were to to go to a a Jewish temple, a synagogue today, they were reading through the book of Isaiah. Do you realize that they don't read Isaiah 53? Skip right over it. Why? Because they have no paradigm for a suffering Messiah. It just doesn't, just doesn't fit what they understand. But Isaiah wrote about it hundreds of years before it ever happened, saying there's going to be a Messiah who suffers. Take your Bibles and turn back just a little bit to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. This is written more like a thousand years before the Son of God ever came to the planet. I'm just going to have to pick out a few passages here. We can't, can't spend all of our time here. Let's look at verse 1. My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? Phil, do you recognize those words from, from anywhere in the New Testament? You do? He did. Jesus prayed those to God on the cross. We read about it in Matthew chapter 27. Look at verses 6 to 8. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. Let Him deliver Him since He delights in Him. Hey Mark, does that remind you of anything that was going on at, at Calvary? Shooting out the lip at Him. That's right. Why don't you come down off the cross? If you're really the Son of God, just shooting out the lip. Exactly. 
Exactly. Now look at verses uh, 12 and following. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. Surely y'all have been in services that have talked about the crucifixion. Surely you've heard essentially how it was that Jesus died. He died because his heart broke. His heart bursted, right? My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. As you realize that David wrote this about 300 years before crucifixion was ever created and invented on the planet. Let's read that again. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Did that happen to Jesus? Absolutely it did. Listen, what is Isaiah and what is David doing here? They are forecasting a future grace that is to be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. Now, these are the sufferings. And we could go on and on about the sufferings. Listen, from gen- literally from Genesis to Malachi, many of the prophets talk about the sufferings of Jesus. These are the two Mount Everests that we read about in Scripture, okay, about the sufferings of Jesus. But we also read about the glories to follow. Look, look at Psalm 2. Let's just turn back to Psalm chapter 2. And the Lord is talking about His Son. His Son who is going to reign in glory and have victory over the nations. Let's just kind of pick it up in in verse 6. And He says, I have set my King on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Let me tell you what what is being prefigured here. It is post-resurrection. It is now the return of Jesus coming. And you have all of these earthly rulers who are trying to jockey for position and jockey for rule and they're saying we need to get rid of this this savior we need to get rid of this messiah or else he's going to take over and he says no i am going to take over i have risen from the dead i have ascended into heaven and i'm coming back in glory and i'm going to rule and reign over those who who love to worship me and i'm also going to dominate those who rebel against me you you know that just so you know a little word picture there pharaoh back in the times of of uh, his reign over Egypt would uh, would take these pottery vessels and uh, and all the people of Egypt would be surround surrounding uh, his throne and he would take these pieces of pottery and they were all designed in a in a specific design to represent the countries and the nations that surrounded Egypt and 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 Pharaoh would actually take his scepter his rod and one by one he would smash each country to show his domination and his rule over the surrounding 
the surrounding countries. And the people of Egypt would just get really excited and yell because of Pharaoh's rule and reign. Well, that imagery is now used for the Lord Jesus. And in his glory, he will rule and reign. To some, it will be glorious. And to others, it will be terrible. Look over at Psalm chapter 16. Psalm 16. Let's go forward about 14. Psalms, and I just want you to look at at verse 10. David here again is writing. It's a messianic psalm. And David says, You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. I have a question here. You know, many um, Old Testament interpreters, in particular Israel, interpreted that to be David. But why could that passage not refer to David? That's right. His body did see corruption. His body did waste away. His body did go to the place of the dead. And it wasn't resurrected. Look, Peter, Peter preaches about this in the New Testament. And he says, listen, this can only refer to Jesus, the greater David, whose body did come out of the tomb, who did resurrect from the dead, and who has not seen corruption. And then finally, guys, let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 9. I'm trying to keep you in the same uh, general vicinity. Isaiah chapter 9. And there, here you really see a, a prefiguring, a forecasting of the glories to follow. So you've got the the death, the sufferings, the the agony of Jesus that is forecasted. And then you see the glories. Look at Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Here we see the eternal rule and reign, ultimately, of King Jesus. And guys, that is a prefiguring of what we read about in Philippians chapter 2, where it says that one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what Peter is talking about when he says that the prophets prophesied of the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And this is just a mere picture. Now, take your Bibles, turn back to 1 Peter, and we'll be there the rest of the time. Actually, no, we'll go to one more place, sorry. (laughs) We'll go to one more place in just a few minutes, but uh, it's the New Testament. It's close by. So they forecasted future grace. And I had to ask myself the question. This is more just a meditation question. This is not necessarily for your notes. You don't find it technically in the, in the words of 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. But I said, why did God cause them to forecast future grace? I mean, why didn't he just all of a sudden bring grace upon the world in the person and work of Jesus? I mean, why, was it, had, why did it have to be foretold? I just wrote down a few answers um, to establish the foundation of God's grace. Um, God, God wanted to establish that not only is he going to deal with people graciously, 
but he is going to forecast his grace so that we can know that this is not going to be a surprise that comes from God. We know that his character is gracious, and we also can expect for his work to be gracious as well, to offer hope of grace to Old Testament people. Um, and I just I say that because the Old Testament says that um, salvation and forgiveness doesn't come by the, the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats. Like, they knew that. Well, they knew that because God had told them that. And essentially, they knew that this blood of bulls and goats is a mere shadow. It is a type of the blood that would be shed in the age to, in the age to come through Jesus Christ. To confirm God's faithfulness, I wrote. And then, here's one that's very important. To establish the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Because what we don't want, guys, we don't want to think, oh, you know, those were Old Covenant, Old Testament believers. They lived by the law. Here we are, New Covenant, New Testament believers, and we live by grace. Let's don't think that, all right? Because that's not reality. They lived by grace. We live by grace. Their grace was anticipated. Our grace has been applied. It's been experienced, okay? very important to understand because otherwise we're going to think differently about the people of God who lived before us that they got saved in some other way I remember hearing uh, Steve Spurrier the great theologian um, who's now at South Carolina I remember years ago when he was at Florida he said something you know I'm more of an Old Testament uh, person you know I believe in the law you know I believe in the you know and and I'm you know thinking to myself uh, Steve you don't understand grace you know Um, yeah I don't know why I said that let's continue um all right, let's look finally uh, at the fact that they investigated grace before we look at the, the second one. Um, they inquired to seek out, to search diligently for something that's lost or unknown. They searched carefully. That means they searched out, they investigated thoroughly. All right, the, the idea here is that they spent days and nights investigating the grace of salvation that would come in the future. It wasn't a topic of of conversation in one theology class in one afternoon. But instead, they actually sat around with their scrolls and their parchments and they decided, hey, let's let's investigate thoroughly. Let's search carefully. Let's try to figure out the nature, the person, and the time in which the grace of salvation is going to be ushered in. And yet they could not find it, even though they investigated, even though they were great theologians. That's why Jesus actually said, to his disciples in Matthew 13. Listen to what he says. He says, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Guys, let's just call it how it is. You and I have been bestowed a grace, a favor that greater men and women longed and searched for and could not find it or see it or experience it. There have been men and women who have spent hours, days, weeks, months, years, and decades investigating the grace of God, and they couldn't see it. And you and I get handed it on a silver platter. Robbie, that's grace, man. Let's don't be the kind of people who waste grace, who treat grace as if it is lightly, who, who treat grace as it's something that uh, we, we deserve or that we've earned. Because 
Look down at your text if you're back at 1 Peter. Notice that to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to you they were ministering. Some of your versions say to us. Either way, it's fine. To us, they were ministering the gospel of grace. This is the deal. Peter writes these words to a struggling, suffering, discouraged church in the northern part of the Roman Empire, and they're spread out, and they're isolated, and they're, they're, they're likely even depressed. And Peter writes these words about the glorious grace of salvation that the prophets inquired and searched carefully, and they couldn't find out, but they knew that they were writing not for themselves, but for you, church, but for you. And you may feel isolated. You may feel discouraged. You may feel like you're suffering under the weight of all kinds of ridicule and malice and all kinds of physical problems and emotional problems and spiritual problems. But what you need to know, church, is that you've got something that they longed for. You've got something that they searched for. You've got something that gives you the power to live under the weight of whatever it is that you're experiencing. I think that's the encouragement that Peter was intending to give when he wrote verses 10, 11, and 12. Which is why I think he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the fullness of the grace of salvation. All right, so that's the bulk of our passage, but let's look at the two other sources. It, these will go by really quickly. Um, the second agent or source by which the Spirit of God has brought about the gospel of grace is preachers. Preachers. Peter says, The things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven to you. What does it mean to preach the gospel? It means to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. To proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. He said, this is how you found it. This is how you heard about it. All right? When I was, uh, when I was a kid, my mom, who's here today, uh, would give me coloring books. And, and the, some of these coloring books, they would have uh, certain pages that were connect the dots. Y'all ever played the connect the dots, you know, in the coloring books? And, and you would connect... Uh, Number one to number two, and number two to number three, and number three to number four, and number four to number five, until finally you've connected number 45 to number 46. And if, you had, if before you connected the dots, you just kind of took a long stare at, at the dots, you could kind of see what it might possibly could be, but you're not exactly sure. You know, it just depends on how good the, the coloring book you know, writer was. But, you know, you could see possibly... But then the more you connected the dots, the more it became to be clear. And I remember, you know, one time, you know, connecting the dots and I looked up and there was a cowboy sitting on a horse with a lasso in his hand. But I, I could kind of see possibly a horse or a, or a rider. But when it was all done, I was like, wow, that is really cool. And then I, I colored it all in. Well, this is what gospel preachers do. They take Old Testament revelation that the dots have been created on the page and they begin to connect the dots. Until all of a sudden, when the message is preached, you're looking at the picture, and you're saying, wow, that is awesome. Now look, this is the one other passage I want you to turn to. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. 
Acts chapter 2. And this is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come down. He's filled Peter. He's filled the other disciples and the followers of Jesus. Tongues of fire have come in the upper room. And then they're speaking in tongues, in in languages uh, of all the people who've who've come throughout the Roman Empire to gather in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and then ultimately to Pentecost, the Jewish celebration. And all of these people from all over the Roman Empire, including Pontus and Galatia and Bithynia and Cappadocia, the recipients of the letter of 1 Peter, they're gathered around, and they can't believe what they're hearing. These guys are speaking in our language. And maybe let's just start in verse 14. Peter stands up with the eleven, raises his voice and says to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. Now I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to tell you that what Peter is doing is he's connecting dot one to dot two at that point. All right? Now let's skip beyond this, Joel 2, 28 to 32, and then let's look at verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, whom God raised up, I'm sorry, who was crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Does that ring a bell to you guys? Does it ring a bell? He's he's joining now dot two to dot three. All right? And then he says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Let's skip down a little bit for time's sake. Let's look at verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He's now connecting dot three to dot four, and he's actually talking about the glories that would follow and how Jesus is going to be the manifestation of that. Let's read what he says to the people. Verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And 3,000 people got to see the dots connected on that day. And what they saw was a picture not only of the crucifixion of Jesus, not only of the resurrection of Jesus, but also the glorification of Jesus and His future reign and rule in the world 
And you know what they did? They repented of their sins. They put their trust in Jesus Christ. And they got to experience the grace of salvation. This is how it worked. Now go back to 1 Peter and we'll finish this thing. Because gospel preachers are not the only agent. The third agent is the angels. The angels. It's the last little phrase in verse 12. It says, things which angels desire to look into. Now, I realize that Peter only talks about um, angels looking and desiring. But let's, let's realize that angels announced the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. Let's recognize that angels actually assisted Jesus when he was facing temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Let's, let's realize that, that angels stood by the grave of Jesus after he had been resurrected and announced it to those who came to the tomb. Let's realize that angels were actually present when Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives into the cloud of glory. And they looked at the apostles and said, just as he ascended, he will also descend. Angels ministered and were part of bringing the message of the grace of God in the glory of the gospel. But they didn't just serve. They didn't just contribute. In, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is telling some stories. He's telling some parables. But then he gives us this important truth. He says, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over what? Somebody know that? One sinner who repents. The legions and legions of angels that exist look upon sinful men and they see their depraved, dark, wicked, rebellious nature. And then they look at the holy God that they're surrounding His throne and they're constantly saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they're in complete awe of this perfect, holy, wonderful God. And then they look down at sinners and they say, Look at that rebel. Look at that sinner. Look at that depraved person. Look at that idolater. Look at that person who will do everything but worship you, God. And all of a sudden, you bring him to repentance. You bring her to repentance. What kind of salvation is this? That's the kind of looking into the angels have. Because they cannot fathom the glory of the grace of salvation. So, he says they long to understand it. And they can't because they don't experience it the way that sinners experience it. I actually want to wrap this thing up between prophets, preachers, and, and angels by reading to you kind of a summary of what I wrote. The prophets thoroughly investigated the present salvation that we currently enjoy. And the ultimate salvation we fully anticipate they didn't know what we know. They didn't experience what we experience. Their salvation experience was one of grace anticipated. Our salvation experience is one of grace accomplished. Did they know grace? Absolutely. They experienced forgiveness of sin, fellowship with God, corporate worship, power for life. But it was all based on an anticipated Messiah and anticipated grace. But for us, it is grace applied. Because we know of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. We know of the sinless life of Jesus Christ. 
we know of the compassionate ministry of Jesus Christ. We know of the powerful preaching of Jesus Christ. We know of the terrible ridicules of Jesus Christ. We know of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. We know of the death of Jesus Christ. We know of the burial of Jesus Christ. We know of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know of the revelation of a resurrected Jesus Christ. We know of an ascended Jesus Christ. We know of a mediation of Jesus Christ. And we know of a future reign and rule of Jesus Christ. We have a grace that is unbelievable. Praise God with all things are possible. All things are possible with Him. Listen, I think I've run out of time as far as preaching. But would you all mind if I just give you some quick hitters as far as some applications? So here we go. Under worship, the way we like to do applications is we go under our four headings, our four pillars, worship, fellowship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. The first thing under worship is submit to God's Word. Guys, God's word is perfect. It has no errors. From Genesis to Revelation, this is what God has said. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is inspired. That means it has no mistakes. It can't be wrong. And it's powerful for your life. Submit to it. And where you don't want to submit to it, where you don't want to surrender to it, pray. And ask God for humility. And say, God, I really resist this truth. I really don't like this part. Well, listen, you've got two options. You can trust your own folly, or you can trust the wisdom of God. We see today the wisdom of God as he ties both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and New Testament, through the grace of salvation. And then celebrate God's grace. This is under worship. Celebrate it. And I, I just meditate on singing. You know, when you're alone, sing. As a family, sing. As a church, sing. Sing in your small groups. The thing is, is nobody has ever had more to sing about than we do. Nobody has, more, has had more gospel songs than what we do. Let's sing to Him. Sing to own and affirm God's grace. Sing to engage your mind in God's grace. Sing to demonstrate corporate unity around gospel grace. But by the power of God, sing to Him in worship. And then under fellowship, i got two for you. Be a vehicle of grace. Be a vehicle of grace. Impart grace to other people. Speak about the glories of salvation. Speak about the grace of salvation. And when you do that, you speak life into people, not death. And then the second one under that is allow Christians to impart grace to you. Allow Christians to impart grace. Listen, this is the deal. Is I think that we often close ourselves off to grace. We don't hang around Christians. We get in our homes and we just stay in our houses. We, we go to our jobs and we just kind of do that thing. We don't text people. We don't call people. We don't receive calls. We don't receive texts. We don't, have, we don't engage in fellowship. We don't have any discipleship relationships. We're not a Paul to a Timothy. We're not a Timothy to a Paul. And this is shutting off ourselves to the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, under discipleship, it's just one. Inquire and search carefully into the grace that has come to you. Inquire and search carefully into the grace that has come to you. There's one aspect of this, y'all, where we don't have to search. We don't have to inquire. 
They searched and inquired because they didn't see it. Now we get to see it. But my fear is, is that we don't even look at what has been given to us. And we don't revel in it. I want to give you three of the most important books that I own. Notice they're about the thinnest books that I own uh, as well. I don't know what that says about me. Um, But the first one is a book called The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. The second one is The Passion of Jesus Christ by John Piper. And the third one is called A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. The reason these are three of the most important books that I own is because they help me to search and inquire into the grace of salvation. Because they give nothing but gospel passages and say this is how the grace of the gospel applies to your life. And you know what, guys? If we don't revel in grace and study grace and inquire about grace, you know what we become? Legalists. We become law people. We become people that we don't want to become because we don't understand what's been brought to us in Jesus. Finally, under mission, embrace the beauty of gospel preaching. Embrace the beauty of gospel preaching. Romans 10 quotes Isaiah 52. says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You realize that when you preach the gospel, that you bring good news, not bad news? You bring peace and not hostility. You bring salvation, not condemnation. You bring hope rather than depression every time you preach the gospel. Embrace the preaching of the gospel because you're bringing the good news of salvation. Let's pray together.